calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, this is Chris Corby, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Man, fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. My guest today is Chris Corby. He's the CEO and founder of Stage Pilot, which is creating virtual and in-person fan experiences for artists, working with clients from Kehlani and Lil Yachty to Korn, Metallica, so many others. Um, they're doing really incredible stuff, and we talk about some of the cool things they have coming up. We also dig into Chris's background as a designer and how he brought that kind of design thinking and, and the DIY ethos of his, uh, his punk rock history into this world of technology. He's got some great lessons. Um, uh, I, I was not expecting to, to hear, uh, you know, some, his great perspective on hiring and leadership and team building and, and you know, how he's pivoted through some pretty major challenges uh, that he's faced in building this business, um, as well as, as how he works with clients to create a vision and bring that to life and, and some really big insights that I think we can probably all benefit from. So I hope you'll enjoy this one. Let's get into it with Chris Corey. Nice. Well, I'm excited to uh, dig into to what you're doing and your journey seems really interesting. So, uh, so let's let's get into it. Um, Perfect. What so, you know, let's let's go back to the to the very beginning. Um, do you remember the first record you bought for yourself? Oh yeah, Thompson Twins. I don't oh, remember nice. the name. Yeah, it's not like that's not one that you look back on super fondly. But I was hey, uh, aiming for like a version, like a virgin. It was sold out. Ended up with a Thompson Twins cassette. That's funny. I mean, Thompson Twins had some hits. You know, Hold Me Now. Oh yeah. Uh, what was that song lies like they had they had some good records you know i i, I don't know what happened to them i guess it you know it didn't nah. they didn't like you know stick with it or whatever but um but that's so funny that you say because you know that thing of like going to the store and then when you went for it sold out so you end up with something else yeah exactly um, it was just and, like you went they had 15 cassettes i mean i grew up in a relatively small town so it wasn't yeah. like limitless albums and you'd show up try to get in line early and you got what you got but crazy uh, yeah i think crazy. that was i mean that was so amazing that at that point i was picking albums like i had my first two choices 
And then I was straight album art, like mm -hmm. whatever album art looked good, I would give yeah. that record a shot. And that was yeah, it. absolutely. It was hit or miss. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and so you you got sounds like you were you were down the art lane pretty early. Is that did you grow up, you know, drawing and designing or how how yeah. that happened? Yeah, I grew up about an hour north of Boston, which now is like a bedroom community, but at that point it might as well have been, you know, a day away. There was <laughs> It was kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, I was pretty deep into skateboarding and then really deep into local hardcore from like middle school on. Oh, okay. And it was just, we had one kind of little country store that had a decent magazine rack. And so, yeah. you know, I became that kid that knew the delivery guy and just waited mm -hmm. for the new Thrasher or Transworld or Freestyling or whatever. And yeah, but there was no access to anything, right? Like if you wanted if you know you could buy the the three decks that they had in the local store right. if you want anything right. else you needed to like wait till you ground it down and draw your own graphics on it mm -hmm. um see so yeah, i was i was pretty i was constantly doodling and drawing and kind of trying to make my own my own clothes my own stuff look my own way yeah nice so did that uh how, that that diy ethos right from you know grinding down your own decks and to the to obviously the hardcore scene that's all diy right you know, how, how much of that do you carry with you today? I think it, there was like a big ebb and a flow for me. Um, I mean, that was kind of everything to me through maybe through high school. And mm -hmm. then um, I got to college and um, studied art and business in college. And it just, it never occurred to me you could make a career out of that. I mean, I had friends that made kind sure. of cut and paste show posters and that kind of stuff for their own zines or whatever, but it just didn't occur to me there was a career there. Right. Um, I did kind of happen into graphic design. Actually, I, I found an animation studio at our school. Man, oh, a friend wow. let me in and I was just, this was like old, seven old machines uh, yeah, in a dark course. room. And you couldn't get in, but the graphic design program was led right across the hall. So I thought if I got into that program, I could meet the, the professor on the animation side of things and, and get to know him and get into the program. Um, and then that's really when it all kind of came back full circle. I realized mm -hmm. there were so, that was late nineties. There were people like David Carson. There were kind of designers who were mm -hmm. breaking a little bit away from what corporate design had to be creating a career out of that kind of cut and paste experimental DIY aesthetic yep. and applying it to big brands and big companies. Um, so that it's definitely a through line. I will say there was that. So as soon as I graduated, I moved to Boston. All I cared about at that point was being, I don't know why in my mind, I wanted to be a super well-known designer. There were these like, okay. Paula Cher had just created just uh, like everything she was creating at the time was, was just, recognizable as hers, but also just like perfectly suited for whatever theater or whatever brand she was working with. Um, Stefan Sagmeister had just come to New York. He was mm -hmm. doing this super kind of thoughtful conceptual work. Um, but I think the problem I found was I just found myself being like an extreme pleaser. Like I, I entered mm -hmm. every project through the eyes of the client or through the eyes of our creative director or the agency I was working for. And it was great for like making your way in that profession. I mm -hmm. think it was amazing at 28, 29 to be a creative director of global brands accounts. Sure. But I was just not really, I'd lost the thread of that kind of, you know, that, that 
I just had not kind of established a voice of my own. I'd maybe lost that DIY thread. Yeah. Um, so tell me about sort of realizing that and kind of finding what, what'd you do? What do you, how'd you find yeah. your voice? So we were in New York for about seven or eight years and I just kept getting bigger and bigger clients. I got these global clients. I started to move towards that riding the line between the visual and the strategic side of brand development, campaign rollout, product rollout. Mm -hmm. And three years in a row, three CEOs I worked with went to jail for corporate fraud, embezzlement. Oh, wow. I was just like, it. this was not, not me. Like, again, yeah. it was, you're winning awards, you're getting big sure. projects, you're, you're getting hired by great firms, but it just was not for me. We had bought, we had two kids at the time. We'd bought an apartment in the Kensington neighborhood in Brooklyn, which at the time was nothing. Mm -hmm. And slowly, like you look out your window and someone's like doing yoga in the park or like a Thai restaurant would open up from, from heroin to yoga. Yeah. It was pretty, yeah. it was like a two or three year change. Sure. Our apartment was worth, you know, decent amount of money. We just sold it. Um, we got in the car and just started driving. We ended up in Dallas, which seemed like a weird place to land. Mm -hmm. um, I had a friend that I'd worked with quite a bit named Frederick Broden. He's a Swedish photographer, a conceptual photographer. And we rented an 8,000 square foot studio together and just decided I'm going to put the last six or seven years of corporate brand development aside maybe keep the kind of thinking and the process and the strategic mm -hmm. side of what went into those projects, but apply it to companies that I care about or brands that I care about. And nice. that was really, I mean, I was working with <coughs> a bunch of pro skaters, a bunch of pro, pro BMXers, mm -hmm. and then with like Scion and, and Southwest Airlines and Stetson and brands where like, I, don't know, I just felt more aligned with the product, with the customer, with the brand. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that kind of space, and you realize again, if you're, there was no boss, there was no creative director, there was no studio or agency owner above you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sitting in a giant empty room, there's a lot of space to try things, you know, and there yeah. are definitely some swings and misses, but sure. definitely did the best work I've ever done kind of in that spot. So some big lessons there. Uh, yeah, sounds like, you know, some sounds like stuff that takes some people a lifetime to, to figure out or, or some never do. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking about today, how what are the things you learned, you know, during that time that are that are, you know, really relevant to the biz, to the business you're building now? Yeah, I, I mean, there's some stage pilot definitely takes some of the kind of ethos from things we learned back then. We built kind of ethos around this brand, things we learned back then. Mm -hmm. The biggest one in my mind is just, you've, we've got to have a culture where everybody expects excellence from themselves. Like everybody believes if this isn't your dream job, if you're not perfectly suited for the role you're in, mm -hmm. if you don't feel like you can just do the best work you're ever possibly going to do in your life or your career, then this just isn't the spot for you. Yeah. So that just taking the time, and finding people to kind of work with, finding voices to bring to the table that that everybody's just inspired and kind of excited to work with. So get, that, uh, that's brilliant. Um, hard to do. Hard to do. Um, so so you know, be be the HR guy for a minute, and like, you know, how do you? Because you know, look, I've hired you know a million people or whatever feels like, and uh, 
you know, they'll, they'll all sit there and tell you that this is their dream yeah. job and they're perfect for it. And they're going to, you know, outperform anyone you've ever seen and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I've come to learn, they all believe it in the moment. Yep. Um, and, and I think part of the job of leadership is to prevent people from making bad decisions for that are, you know, decisions that are bad for both themselves and your business. Right. Yeah. Um, so how do you do that? How, how do you find those people? How do you, how do you check, you know, whether or not they're, you know, whether or not this is really their dream job and they're going to, they're going to be excellent in the role that you're about to put them in. Well, we've been lucky in that we were a four-person company for seven years and then just completely exploded this past year and we're about 20 yeah. now. So we've been doing quite a bit of hiring for the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say there are a lot more amazing interviewers than there are amazing teammates. You know, like yep. I say, a lot of people know how to kind of Definitely. sound good. It took a minute to figure out how to get through that and not just think like, man, this guy's amazing. This girl's amazing. Let's just mm-hmm. let's jump right in. Mm-hmm. But for seven years, we were just a technology company that supplied technology to the entertainment industry. Okay. So we worked with every label, a lot of great management companies, VIP companies. And over that seven years, it like core to I think everybody here is super serving, over-serving fans, artists, management teams. So we had really strong relationships with three or four people at every client. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that as the pandemic hit and a lot of companies were furloughing or laying off employees, we were growing like by the week and we just reached out to the best client or two, best person at every one of our client or two. And Mm -hmm. just said, Mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've worked together in in this way and and, in that way. And let's, why don't you come on board? And like half of those people said yes. And we just built the core, the leadership team, just from the dream team of people we've worked with in the past few years. And obviously that's not always, that can't always happen, right? You don't sure. always have a pandemic or some kind of, you know, <laughs> right. global situation that lets a lot of super talented people be available. But that, look, I mean, that's a great approach to hiring. And I've, I've learned to kind of do that as much as possible, which is, you know, I always say the best way to learn whether you want to work with someone is to work with them. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, almost all of my great people, I've just hired them for an individual project. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, once, and then we go, Oh, this is awesome. Let's keep doing it. Right. And yep. then you, and, and like you said, you can't always do that, but, um, but I think, you know, it's such a great thing to realize that a great interviewer is not the same as a great yeah. employee or, or team member or whatever. And, you know, and, and people do, you know, both sides are, are the worst for the, yeah. all the imperfections in that process. Also, um, great employee or team member at four or five person company is different than a 20 person company is different than a totally. hundred or thousand person company. So yeah, we have a big kind of fail fast thing. I don't, I don't care if you fail. In fact, if you're not, if we're not failing, obviously we're not trying hard enough. Yep. We're going to have some misses but I want to do it in a day or a week. I don't want to fail mm-hmm. over the course of a month or two. And it's the same with team members. When people come on board, we're clear up front. If this isn't a fit, no hard feelings, no harm yeah. done, go, go yeah. do something else. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's something we've had a few folks that have come on and just, we love them in one way or another, but just wasn't a great fit and part ways stay connected and maybe work together in another, in another fashion down the road. Yeah, that's great. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, you know, I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of art directors, you know, the great ones, 
are, uh, you know, they, they expect to fail yeah. in the sense that you, you know, you deliver a concept and there's no, there's no illusion that this is meant to be perfect, right? It's meant to be a work in progress and, you know, they realize, and I think that's part of what you learn in, in, you know, as a designer, right. Is that the feedback and the, the, you know, iteration and editing refinement process is crucial to producing great work. And, um, and I think that's hard for a lot of people that don't have that background, right. Is they, you know, people turn in a piece of work or they show up, you know, in the yeah. morning and they expect to just be told how, you know, what a great job they're doing. Right. And that's not, um, you know, I don't think that's a character flaw. I think that's training. I think, you know, yeah. you have to have it kind of beaten into you one way or another that, you know, it's not, it's never right at the beginning. Nothing is ever right the first time and it's not supposed to yeah. be right. Yeah. I think that's the key, right? It's not going to be yeah. and that. That was a hard lesson, right? I mean, I clearly remember my first big design firm I worked for in Boston. Um, I worked for a guy named Bob Kellerman that whether he knew it or not, I mean, one, he meant a lot to me before I worked there. He's mm. super smart designer, mm-hmm. but man, he had a hundred resumes from art school graduates on his desk at all time. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it was like, if you walk into a situation and you get your feelings hurt, you know, on yeah. a minute one, because a hundred percent of your idea wasn't taken. Right. There, there are other people who, who will kind of grow in that way and will learn to kind of evolve ideas. And I think what, what became apparent was the people that get really good at that, the people, and this is maybe bigger in the design world than anywhere else, the people that are able to kind of understand a need and then craft some solutions and kind of partner with other people or listen to other people, mm-hmm. they're just big question askers. I think people who walk in and are like, it's going to be A, it's going to be B, it's going to be C, and then we're going to do D and then we're done. That always makes me nervous. And that kind of comes back in our hiring process. People that sure. are so like just insanely sure of themselves on minute one, make me nervous. I think the person that comes in, asks a ton of questions, does not feel compelled to have an answer on the spot, mm-hmm. does not tell it like it is from minute one. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see that as a flaw. I don't see that as they're not kind of an expert in their space. I see that as yeah. someone that's got like curious, just wants to just, you know, wants to get as much information as humanly possible, learn every possible thing you can, then start to drill down on the solution. So now you're leading a team, right? Um, uh, you know, what you just said, how, how much can you teach that? Or do you just have to find the people that are that way already? Uh, this could be a flaw with me. I think you have to find, it's gotta be, it's gotta be at least 50% there when you start. Yeah. I don't. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't, I don't know that you take someone that is immediately confident in everything they do, especially if they're young and don't have experience and haven't built those thoughts. They've, whether they've seen right. it somewhere, or they've heard it somewhere, or whether it's a meme or a hashtag. I mean, this like assault of just sound bites and that becomes mm-hmm. my ethos. That becomes my kind of guiding principle is it's maddening to me. I think it's, <laughs> you know, and it, I don't know. Maybe I'm sure there are people who can kind of craft that and grow and nurture those people into more of a thoughtful um, teammate. I just don't see it. We're moving so fast. Mm-hmm. I'm really, or we say we're really interested in just building a team of people who from the get-go, at least 50% of their outlook is, I don't know the answer until we have a conversation. I love that. Um, so, so go back to, go back a little bit. Um, tell me about how the idea for stage pilot came together 
And, uh, you know, what'd you, what would tell me about kind of getting it off the ground? Yeah. So we moved to Nashville for kind of family reasons. We had three kids at the time and had never lived by family. My wife's family is here. So mm-hmm. we closed Meat and Bones, which was my, my design company in, in New York and Dallas, moved to Nashville and became the creative director of, a, of Emma email marketing company that's since been purchased by Campaign Monitor. And, you know, immediately went back to this idea that it was a great environment, really great group of people, but it, it just was not for me. Yeah. Stepped away and, um, i had in my back, I mean, completely different from what stage pilot is now. I had in the back of my head, this idea that as smartphones got better and better, as everyone started buying DSLRs and cameras everywhere you look, people are just amassing photos and videos. Like they're mm-hmm. just curating this live story. And it's stored, you know, on memory cards and hard drives. And there was no yep. Google Photos or Apple Photos at the time. And so the thought was, I wanted to create a place where from generation to generation, you could build and share and pass on your visual story or your legacy. Mm. And core to it would be privacy, no data mining, no advertising, not kind of, mm-hmm. you know, spoiling those memories by turning them into a commodity. Sure. Instead, having a a subscription model where you paid for that kind of privacy. Um, I called a, a friend and, and client that I worked with for years named Robert Turner um, from a Starbucks parking lot, not thinking he would answer the phone. And when he picked up, I kind of fumbled my way through this thought and he was amazing. He said, just come out to Steamboat where he was hanging out for the summer and let's talk through it. Um, in a week's time, we had, prototype the whole thing came up with mm-hmm. a with a revenue model he invested in the company and at the time it was called archiver it launched in beginning of 2013 mm. uh, it did remarkably well until apple photos google photos right. and at the time dropbox launched a, a sure. similar product and then yep. was decimated overnight like of course first huge cutoff at the knees for archiver yeah. was went to zero growth overnight um but we had, Brutal. you know, we still had money in the bank. We took a look at who was using it, how they were using it, and noticed that, like, a lot of times people say, yes, it's important to me to organize all these memories, but are they mm-hmm. going to sit down for 48 hours and gather it all, digitize okay. it, upload? Probably not. But when people were getting married, like, I'm cl- like, my story and your story are coming together. Mm-hmm. That seemed like a popular time for people to get into our world. And so we launched a wedding app called Ceremony that is still you know, is, is kind of rolling today and does remarkably well today. And it was just, it gathered all of your guests, photos and videos and created a timeline of high resolution kind of memory oh, cool. through the yeah. lens of all your guests. And you'd walk away right. from your wedding with that. Yeah. Um, and then that was used by a tour manager um, here in Nashville, who was like, man, can we do this at a concert? Could we crowdsource mm-hmm. everybody's, you know, not a hashtag, not on Instagram, but could we just get everybody's high-res assets in a place that we could go ahead and reuse them. And so we quickly propped up a non-wedding branded version of that. Cool. And uh, that's how, that's how we got into the the music world. Amazing. I mean, you know, I love that. Uh, Sounds painful, right? You know, you think you you got some momentum happening and then, you know, these giant companies like, you know, something that's meaningless to them changes your life you know, overnight. Um, but yeah. it's also- I mean, what hurt the most was it, 
privacy was the polar opposite of where they were coming from, right? Sure. There was no privacy. Every shred of every, I remember we were out at Google once getting a rundown of their facial recognition technology, thinking mm-hmm. about adding some ability to kind of sort your photos based on what's in them. Mm-hmm. And then just all walking away, like white-eyed and terrified that basically they can look at the back of your head in a photo in a crowd right. and know everything about you. So crazy. Uh, but um, Absolutely. Yeah, it was, you know, it, it, again, it was like the whole idea of failing. It's, it was heartbreaking a little bit. It was kind of our baby, but I don't think any of us expected that on day one, we were going to come up with a solution for, sure. for yeah. the company. And, you know, we were, we were flexible and, and, and pivoted and, and moved and, and shifted perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think that's part of the process. Right. And, and I, I think it's just, you know, it may be fun or not fun, right. Depending on the situation. Right. But, but, you know, kind of what you're talking about is just like, okay, you know, this happened. Now, what do we do next? Right. And we got this feedback. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's go now. Like, let, let's start over. Let's, let's take from where we're at and yep. go over there. Right. And, yep. um, and so, you know, along those lines, right. As you said, uh, you know, everything changed again last year with the pandemic um, you know, I, I have a few friends in the, in the live streaming business and, um, you know, from, from my, uh, uninformed perspective, it seemed to go from about, you know, five players in the space to like 50 or a hundred yeah. pretty much overnight, right. Yeah. Or over, over 60 days or something like that. Um, so tell me about kind of going through that and, and, you know, how you, then decided to adapt to that changing landscape and, yeah. and, you know, where do you take it from there? So as the pandemic started, Archiver had been shifted to be called Archiver VIP and all of our technology was built around the VIP ticket holder in a venue, mm-hmm. getting them in the door seamlessly, being sure they get the right merch package, giving yep. them things to do, whether it's like flash sales or whatever, if they have a photo taken, getting that photo to their phone immediately in about 250 tours at any time, like, it was every day. It was like Metallica tonight and Peppa Pig tomorrow. It was a pretty good range mm-hmm. of, of people using it. When the pandemic hit, obviously that was completely <coughs> gone. There was just, again, yeah. went down to zero overnight. And we had a good team. You know, we had, again, still had money in the bank. And just that everybody, there was a, such a land grab for live streaming. Mm-hmm. We decided to start with what would a VIP experience look like with no venue? So we took a month or two and built the kind of core of stage pilot, which is this virtual meet and greet platform where fans can log into kind of a virtual waiting room and chat with each other, shop for merch, watch videos, whatever the artist wants. And then one by one enter into a video call like this with the artist. Mm-hmm. And we're just, we knew it would go well. There are a lot of VIP tickets that had been sure. put on hold and needed to have some kind of, some kind of experience. It was bananas. I mean, it just went from like, yeah, you know, you get a you get a meet and greet photo taken backstage. You kind of go through a line. You have a quick arm around somebody, smile, and move on. This was like two minutes in my living room with you know an artist in their living room, mm-hmm. and so th- that kind of spark of this is bigger than just a kind of holdover for the pandemic was pretty immediate. And then artists started doing, you know, not thirty fans, but a hundred fans, and then five hundred fans, and then fifteen hundred fans, and just making this part of their week and month. Yeah. And the, the feedback was, this is great, 
But like you say, there are all of these live streaming startups. And so if there's a complete event, you're buying a ticket over here and then you're jumping into a live stream over there and a meet and greet over here and merch over there. And it was a pretty disjointed experience. And I think mm -hmm. artists were incredibly mm -hmm. sensitive to having a very seamless, I'm already doing this virtually. We're already doing right. it with technology. And so we, we again kind of stepped back and built kind of the first ticketing, live streaming, meet and greet, merchandise platform and kind of went back on an early thought and it was incredibly informed by data. So mm -hmm. we just learned where are people buying, when are they buying, what are they buying? And so much of our work is partnering with artists and doing series mm -hmm. of events. How can we be sure each one is just more informed, more dialed into what fans want and just get better and better? Um, there's a little fear, I think, that so many live stream companies were loaded up with VC capital and we're really just bleeding money, paying artists hundreds of thousands of dollars to be on their totally. platform. Totally. Our thought was we're not paying anybody. Every mm -hmm. event we've ever done has been profitable. Mm -hmm. And if we lost some, that would be okay. If we get some, that's okay. But, you know, our, we'd been around for eight years. We were going to stay around for, you know, for the future. So mm -hmm. that was a little bit of a, of a hurdle at first that artists were like, great, how many, you know, what are you going to put into the pot yeah. to get this going? Right. But we found this niche with, I don't know about you, at two months into the pandemic, I had seen a thousand live streams. Mm -hmm. um, some were just amazing, but most were like, this is my arena show that happens to be filmed. Yep. That's available on YouTube. It's available right. in a venue. It's available. So we started yep. going to artists and saying like, what can you not do on stage? Like, what is mm -hmm. the thing you've always wanted to do? Mm -hmm. you know, some of them are super into cooking or into sneakers or into car. Like, let's build an event. And you're not going to get 100,000 fans. You might get 10,000 fans. You're not going to get right. a million fans. Yeah. You might get 50,000 fans. Mm -hmm. But let's dial into something just completely unique to you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, we've done everything from a cooking show with Lauren Elena, where instead of a typical release party, she was quarantined in Airbnb. And we sent out some gear and she sent out a recipe and all the fans kind of made a pizza together while she sang oh, two cool. new songs. Like, nice. Those are the types of things that I'm much more interested in than just, yeah. let's just snap back to what you did pre-pandemic. Let's just film mm -hmm. your arena show and let's try to get as many people as humanly possible to buy a ticket. No, I think that's brilliant. I mean, I, that was definitely the question that I was asking, you know, you know, of, of clients and folks I was working with right at the time is like, you know, a, there, there is no substitute for being live in the room. No you know, and being shoulder to shoulder with other people no. who are losing their minds at the same, right. In in this, you know, sharing those moments and the drinks and the socialization and the hookups yeah. and all that stuff, right. You, there is, so like, stop trying to yeah. just be a worse version of that. Yeah, right? exactly. Think, you know, you're hundred percent right to think, okay, you know, what are all the things you can't do in that environment that maybe we can explore? Yeah. And um, and I think that's where the, the great stuff's going to come out of. And I think, you know, it's I'm interested to see where it goes now. Right. Like, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, all of a sudden tours are back. They're selling out. People clearly want to be out of the house and want to be yeah. having these experiences that we missed out on for a year and a half. Um, you know, I, I have to guess that the, the live streaming folks like it's, it's got to be tough right now. For them, and and I was even hearing that from you know six months ago that like 
artists were kind of like, eh, I, you know, I don't want to do it. It's not enough money for me to really yeah. do something that I don't love yeah. and I'll just wait. Right. And so I'm sure that's only gotten worse. Yeah. Um, so what does it look like now? If you, if you, you know, things are reopening and if you, you look out at the next year ahead. Yeah. How does we've it got change three for you? Going. We look at, we've hired quite a few folks from the VIP companies we used to work with. So we're mm -hmm. now ticketing and executing live in-person VIP. Cool. And that's great. Yeah. The other side, we're still doing quite a bit of virtual work, but my, I think our, our interest and focus right now is if you're putting on a 50-day tour through the U.S. or you're doing a 78-day tour through U.S. and U.K. or through Europe, what do all the other fans get who are just yeah. never going to be in a city you come through? Totally. So we're building this hybrid model where mm -hmm. we'll be on tour, but what are all the things we can do for fans who aren't there? So we'll do virtual meet and greets. We are doing mm -hmm. virtual meet and greets in the off days. But what about like, we've got a, an artist that is loves cooking chicken wings, like barbecued chicken wings. So mm -hmm. we have like a live stream cookout once a month. We're doing some things with folks we're live streaming from their tour bus. We're live streaming from backstage. And that's just all built around that, the touring cycle. Right. So there is the ability to use, you know, people's kind of openness to experience entertainment at home now, mm -hmm. use technology to kind of extend your reach beyond the folks that are in the cities you tour through. Mm -hmm. But if you put touring aside and think about that cycle of, I write a single, an album, I drop merch, like what are all the things I do off tour? Right. We're able to kind of keep artists engaged with fans. And again, off cycle, it might be just your core fans, your super fans, your mm -hmm. VIP fans. But what are all the things we can do to keep them engaged, whether it's streaming from the studio while you're tracking, whether it's streaming a release party, whether it's. Um, and so I think there's going to be space for everything. And mm -hmm. Stage Pilot's kind of position is if we are giving the same level of service to in-person tours, to virtual events, to hybrid events, if we're partnering with folks and again, really understanding what is it that I don't think a lot of people ask artists. What, what would you want to do if you weren't on right. a stage? Like yeah. get to know them, get to understand them, get to understand their fans. We're just continually crafting experiences that just would not be doable backstage or on stage. And I think as mm -hmm. long as you create interesting, unique, intimate, honest experiences, there's always going to be a fan for that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition, right? You were talking about taking chances, fail fast, right? To, to, you know, this design creative process, right? And at the same time, you know, you have, you have big stars, you know, you have Lil Yachty, you have, you know, Kehlani, right? People who have, um, they have brands to protect. Yeah. And celebrities are under more scrutiny in some ways, you know, than they've ever been. Some, yeah, some, is like that, Definitely. You know, that's always a moving target. Right. So, um, so I think, you know, getting them to take chances, right. Or to think differently about how they engage with fans is a really, um, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. Yeah. I think the way you do that is the same way <laughs> th there's this, um, actually, I can't even remember the guy's name years ago at a wedding. I met a guy who is a, he made props for the wire, the show, the wire. Mm-hmm. 
And at the time I was art directing a ton of kind of corporate photo shoots. So, you know, you might be in a studio and you have four very specific sets right. and everything out yep. that is just crew and client. Mm-hmm. And he was saying every drawer you open, every piece of paper, every, everything is designed and thought, you know, thought through. Sure. So it was not part of the script, but if somebody leaned over and picked up a piece of paper and turned it over, it wasn't a blank piece of paper. Right. And that kind of like, I don't I mean, I simplify that in my mind to like the phrase light the room, like light more than what you expect to shoot. Mm. And we take that same approach with virtual events. <laughs> and I think the best possible example was, and this is really nothing we really planned for. You mentioned Yachty. He did meet and greets after a live stream. He was doing them from the studio, but everything ran late and he had to get to the airport and did not think he would have time to meet these fans. Mm-hmm. he's insanely engaged with fans. There is no yeah. chance he's going to let fans down. So we like quickly huddled, put him in the back of some like luxury car, lit it with the dome light. Mm-hmm. And he did his meet and greets rolling around town in the back of this, you know, baller car with a bunch of 15 year olds one at a time. And it ended nice. up being like the best possible event, you know, yeah. production budget was zero. Yeah. Planning was zero. Just yeah. the ability to think on your feet, understand what's available to you. And sure. like at a moment's notice, have the right people in the room to come up with an idea, sell it through, have that rapport with an artist and just jump in a car and run the event from the backseat of a car. That's brilliant. So what do you, what do you learn from the artists that you, you're working with? Yeah. One is, um, you know, it, I think I have a much deeper appreciation for the complexity of an artist's life. You know, they're Mm -hmm. managed up and down wall to wall. Sure. Um, The, the, you know, I think a lot of what we do is downtime. You know, if you're doing 40 meet and greets, we're, we're on a call an hour before that we're on a call for a few minutes between. Yeah. Like everybody else, you just want to be heard, be respected. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of rapport building. We've built relationships with artists that I don't, I don't typically go into, into a situation thinking I want to become friends with the artist. And that's right. important to the rest of the crew here. It's not, this isn't your time to kind of become friends with someone and snap sure. a photo for Instagram. But we've spent so much time just listening to people talk and just having yeah. an open ear and understanding like between calls, you know, like that another thing with Yachty is a big sneaker fan, like understanding these little things that kind of make you interesting and make you, you, if you mm-hmm. listen enough and then come back and present back to them, you know, I heard you say this, what if we tried that? I saw you reacted this way to this. What if we tried that? I think that mm-hmm. ability to be a sponge, understand kind of what makes them unique, not their Instagram persona, not their mm-hmm. TikTok persona, mm-hmm. not their stage persona, but as a person, what kind of drives them, that really fosters a partnership that we can start doing things other than again, replicating your public persona in a virtual way or in a backstage or in a VIP setting. That That's great. And, and, you know, part of why I wanted to talk to you, you know, I was, I was there's an article this morning about, you know, Spotify announced they're trying to, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, they had this thing of enabling a million artists to, to uh, uh, live off their, their music. Right. And, um, you know, I was talking about the, the difference between a musician and a content creator. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the reality is they have to be both, right? To be successful in the environment today, you have to be both. And, you know, the, um, the volume of content and experiences and engagements 
that content creators are forced to to put out is just you know it's staggering and it's only getting yeah. worse. Um, yeah, and the scrutiny put on every single piece of content, right? The sure. scrutiny on every interaction, the scrutiny yeah. on everything you put out in the world—it's intense. Well, I was, I was talking to my son this morning. I was like, you know, if you're a movie director, you have to have a great idea every three to five years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's if, right. And if you're Mr. Beast, you have to have an idea that your fans want, you know, four times a week yep. or more, right? Like, yep. it's just, it's nonstop. And, you know, and so I think, you know, the kind of stuff you're doing is really important because it get you know, because most artists are not going to sit there you know, in the room with the manager and just come up with all these brilliant mm -hmm. things that they can execute on their own, right? And so they need the right partners and they need the kind of thinking that, that I think you guys are bringing to the table to be able to yeah. turn some of those everyday moments or those, you know, like I said, the downtime in, into something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice, I love absolutely. it. Well, let me get to a, a quick lightning round before I let you go. You got it. Um, what's your favorite city to travel to? Uh, back to New York still. Nice. Yeah. Um, who's your favorite DJ? Um, I've not been, I'm not super into DJs, but Alta is by far my favorite, a little lower than the angels. They've, uh -huh. they came up as one of our software engineers put one of their videos in our demo environment. So when we test new live oh, stream cool. features, that's there. And so I am pretty nice. deep into Alta right now. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, what's the last great book you've read or listened to? Yeah, I think um, I've been on a real tear of nonfiction lately, but when I go back to um, just storytelling and just kind of creating a picture of somebody's life. My oldest son's name, Holden. And I think back to Catcher in the Rye was a book I read right when we got married and was so influential to just me as trying to become a more evolved storyteller. I think sure. it's, it's still hard to beat, you know, that Holden Caulfield kind of character and persona so that's a it's a great book and it's one that you know i think for most of us you're forced to read it at a time when you probably have the least interest that's exactly right <laughs> so that's like, that's all go, great art, right you might again. see it in one environment and it just doesn't click with you but when you take the time to think about it or your life evolves or circumstances yeah. evolved it has a different connection and now yeah. i see my three boys reading it and it's just it's a that one's been it's had a good kind of cycle with me sure Oh, that one, that's great. Um, what movie do you think you've seen the most in your life? Good question. I think recently, probably Royal Tenenbaums last 10 years, because nice. I was a big fan of Wes Anderson when it came out. I had a friend yeah. that did some of the titling work, so I watched a lot with them. And then as my kids got older, they got into Wes Anderson and they started sure. watching their films. I think we've probably watched Tenenbaums a thousand times in the past 10 years in our house. I mean, it's, it's worth it. What a great movie. Could be worse, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who's someone you've learned a lot from that you haven't met? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, man, if I go back into the kind of design world, I mean, he's a name that at one point everybody talked about and I did some work with him in the kind of early 2000s and he's kind of completely fallen off the map. His name was Bill Cahan. Mm -hmm. He started an agency called Cahan Associates in the early 2000s in San Francisco. And he, I, I think single-handedly that firm and a handful of the art directors and designers there took corporate design into the conceptual space. 
mm. not in the jokey space, not in the goofy, mm-hmm. let's make the kind of goofiest, stupidest commercial and hope people remember how dumb it was, but yeah. like the most kind of intelligent. Yeah. Look up Kahan and associates. Look at some yeah, of the reports will. they created. It was, it was, it put me on a different career track and then working with Bill a couple of times kind of put me on a bit of a different personal track. It was nice. a big influence. Yeah. Never awesome. met him in person. Um, so if I worked at stage pilot, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Oh man, I think <laughs> um, there are a couple things. I think we talk a lot about like, I, you watch the West wing uh, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think the chief of staff has this phrase, like keep the knucklehead stuff off the president's desk. Like let's keep the knucklehead stuff out of our, like get it done and get it over with. Let's not focus yeah. on, on the minutia. Let's not focus on the little things that aren't important. Mm. Um, fail fast is a big one. I mean, I, I don't, I really, I want everybody to take time and experiment every week and every month without the mm-hmm. fear of this isn't going to produce something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one is, you know, for, for a risk of being brash is give a fuck. Like you really, if you don't care, if you're not personally invested in every fan, you know, if yeah. your customer support, it's easy to be like, no, you can't live stream on a flip phone. But, you know, I mean, if you don't right. care about each fan, each artist, each client, then yeah. you're really just in the wrong spot. So that like deeply care about everyone we're working with. Um, those are probably the three biggest. Those are great. And, and I, uh, I, I was with a buddy the other day who's a, he's, you know, you know, he runs a big record label. And so he said that, uh, you know, his friends with kids will always send, you know, they'll always send them their kids music. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and he said, you know, my rule is if they've listened to all of the music they're sending me and they believe in it, then I'll listen to it. Yeah. And he's like 90% of the time, you know, when I tell them that, I never hear from them again. Yeah. Like they, they maybe listen to the one song and they just forward it along. And he's like, you know, yeah. if, they, if they, right? And so by the time they go back and they realize, oh, this maybe isn't that good. He's like, don't make it my job to, you know. Yeah, so, man, have a filter. That's the knucklehead stuff. Have a filter. Right. Think it through. Yeah. If that's not worth moving along, drop it and move to the next thing. Yeah. No, I yeah. love that. That's yeah. great, man. Well, dude, I appreciate the conversation. It's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Talk to you. Bye. Yeah, that was Chris Corby on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out stagepilot.com to see what they have coming up. I'm sure uh, some of your favorite artists might be on there. Give us some feedback. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you like. We're at Rebel Radio Net. We have videos of a lot of our episodes showing up on our YouTube channel. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.